If you have your Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke and to chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, that will be our text for the sermon this morning. We're continuing a series through the Gospel according to Luke. So we've been there for a few months now. We made it to the last or the middle part of Luke 6. So the scripture reading, the New Testament scripture reading will be from Luke 6, 27 to 36. And that is on page 862 if you're using one of our chair Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible or two in each row in the back of a chair. If you're using one of those, it'll be page 862 for Luke 6. And then hold your place there. Uh, and turn to Lamentations 3. The Old Testament reading today will be Lamentations 3, 22 to 33. And if you're using one of our chair Bibles, that will be on page 688. 688. And if you're not using one of our chair Bibles and you're like, Lamentations, it's right after Jeremiah, which is one of the big ones, um, one of the big prophets, major prophets in the Old Testament. Kind of near the middle of your Bible. So Lamentations 3 will be where the reading is from first. Lamentations 3, 22 to 33, followed by Luke 6, 27 to 36, and the scripture will be read today by Eric McIntyre. Good morning. Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect, uh, expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are merciful. We thank you that you are kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Would you help us as we consider this text today? Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you shape us into the people that you want us to be? Would you show us the love of Christ for us? As Jesse said to us and prayed earlier, would you push, push out the boundaries of our understanding of your love for us. And as we come to know your great love for us, would you help us to share that love with others, even our enemies? So we ask for your help now, confident that you love to give it. So please come meet with us, lead us, convict us where we need to be convicted. 
We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So since the beginning of chapter 5, we've been seeing Jesus begin to call out a new people of God. And not the people that we expect, which of course is exactly what Jesus said that he would do. He said he would do that in chapter 4 when he said he came to call that list of like, wait, that's, that's not the people we associate with, people who are poor, blind, slaves. Jesus says, that's who I came for. That's who I came to save, to call my own. And of course, that also fit with the prophecies of the Old Testament and even the prophecies that Luke 1 and Luke 2 gave us. Last week, we started considering what is known as the Sermon on the Plain, which continues to the end of chapter 6. So we're kind of in the middle of a sermon of Jesus right now. And this is the first time that Luke has given us any of Jesus' teaching at length. Uh, And even this is significantly shorter than what would be considered kind of a parallel sermon in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. So it's similar, but it has its differences as well. And in this sermon, Jesus instructs his disciples, those who follow him, those who belong to him. He instructs us, if we are in him, about how to follow him, about how to live as part of his upside-down kingdom. Jesus doesn't do things the way that we would do them. We should actually be really grateful for that. And he doesn't do things the way the world does. Yes, he lives among us and he is fully one of us, yet without sin. As he lived on the earth, he fully embodied the values of heaven and of the world to come. And he calls us to follow him. So he begins his sermon in verse 20, we looked at this last week, with blessings and curses, blessings and woes, excuse me, teaching us that money is not the currency of his kingdom. And we thought together about that, meaning that he's leading us into an upside-down kingdom. Because money, last I checked, it has some currency here. He says that's not the currency of his kingdom. Our relationship with Jesus must transform our relationship with money. And this week, our relationship with Jesus transforms our relationships, not with money, but with others. Even our enemies. So the big idea for this morning is this. As followers of Jesus, we must love our enemies. As followers of Jesus, we must love our enemies. Talk about an upside-down kingdom. Right? This is not the way we are by nature. This is not the way we are by nurture either. It's not the way we're trained to think or act. How different a place would this world be if God's people lived like this? If we loved even our enemies. You think of the great commandment, which is love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Some have called this one the hardest commandment, right? It's one that we just doesn't feel right. We don't want to do it. We want to find any way we can to explain it away or find a reason that it doesn't apply to that person. And so we want to dig into this command to love even our enemies. So let's look first at the details of the text and see that we must love our enemies. And we want to start by talking about what it's not and what it is. And talking about what it's not will actually lead, I think, to a powerful example of what it is to love our enemies. So look back at verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, those who are gathered to listen to him, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
Now that second to last word in verse 28, abuse, is translated in the NIV, mistreat. Um, I, I know that abuse is a word that immediately brings up all sorts of thoughts and all sorts of issues. So at the outset, in talking about what we don't mean when we say love your enemies, loving your enemies does not mean that we subvert justice. If you have been abused and you've never told anyone because you're supposed to love your enemies, let me say to you that you can seek to bring your abuser to justice and love your enemy. We think of those as automatically just at odds with one another. If if I'm really going to love them, then I won't want to see them get in trouble or pay the penalty. But that's not love. If crimes have been committed against you, it is important for the perpetrators to face justice. We must never avenge ourselves, right? God makes that very clear. But part of government's purpose is to punish evildoers. So loving our enemies is never to subvert Justice, And we have a real-life example that we were given a few years ago. Many of you remember in 2015 the Charleston church shooting where a young man went into a Bible study at an African Methodist Episcopal church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he said he was trying to start a race war, and he killed nine people in a matter of a couple minutes, in hatred and anger. And we watched on our televisions a couple days later several people who had lost family members in that atrocity, who had lost friends, fellow church members, in that atrocity, and one after the other, through their tears, in court, where he's about to get justice, they said, I forgive you. That is a powerful statement. These are people who understand, be merciful, as your Father is merciful. Now that pronouncement of forgiveness in court, which was sincere and almost unimaginable to us, it doesn't make any sense to the world, and even for us it's hard. Right? I mean, if that was a Bible study at our church, would we be ready for that? It didn't mean that they didn't mourn the loss of family and friends. It didn't mean that the man didn't go to prison. That man's now serving nine consecutive life sentences. Which tells us that the justice this world can give can never be enough for certain things. So loving our enemies, even giving, offering forgiveness to our enemies, does not subvert justice. Ultimately, we trust God's justice, that he will always do what is right. So loving our enemies does not mean that we subvert justice. So then what does it mean? Well, I think we've already heard of a great example. But as we consider the details of the text now, we, we want to see that the commands are not time-bound. There are some who would look at a sermon like this and go, well, this was Jesus speaking to his disciples when he was on the earth, and this is, this is about the kingdom, and it doesn't really apply to us today. And I don't know if there's anybody in here who's thinking this, but pretty much we would answer that with a, with a flat no. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that. There's nothing that releases us from these commandments. Therefore, every follower of Jesus, his disciples then, his disciples now. 
And so first we want to ask, who is, who is your enemy? Right? So we're going to see things in the text, but then there might be faces that come to mind. Maybe you've lived a charmed life and there's no face that comes to mind. Maybe you've lived a very difficult life and there's, it's like a list of faces and you're just seeing them in pain after pain after pain. Who is your enemy? Who is one of those people? It says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you or mistreat you. This is the kind of person, like who falls in the enemy category? Someone who hates you, someone who curses you, someone who mistreats you. And so one of the things we learn right off the bat is that this is not for people that we never actually engage with, right? So it's easy to get up anger when there's war going on and it's those people over there and they're the cause of all their problems. That's not so much what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about people that we actually engage with. People we are in conversation with. People who are part of, on some level, our lives. Now, online engagement makes the world a much smaller place. Right? Because you can engage with someone from all the way on the other side of the world in an instant. And so just a question I would ask on that is, are you demonstrating that you are a follower of Jesus in your online engagement? Do you deal fairly with arguments made by other people? Do you listen to what they say or do you just copy and paste the same things in every thread that you're a part of? Because you have to say your thing and show that you're a Christian. Are you demonstrating in your online engagement by the way that you interact online? Are you different from those who don't know anything about loving enemies? That enemies are just ones to demonize. Enemies are just ones to defeat. It should be different for us. And of course, we don't only have online enemies, right? What about where we live? A boss, a coworker, the mean girls at school, your child, your spouse, a parent, a neighbor. Many of these on the list, they're the people that should would never be in the enemy category. But often they are. What does loving our enemy look like? Those who hate us, those who curse us, those who mistreat us. Well, we get a bit of a formula here. From verses 27 and 28. Love to our enemies is something that should happen in action, in word, and in heart. In action, in word, and in heart. Look back at the text. Love your enemies. And what? Do good to those who hate you. So when you can identify there's that person who hates me, we love them in action. That we do good. And so they hate me. Why would I ever do that? That's the point. That's the upside downness of this. Do good to those who hate you. But then of those who speak evil of you, those who curse you, right? We're so tempted to curse back. So yeah, well, you get whatever you deserve now. But Jesus says something else. He says, bless those who curse you. Now, I'm sure you've never been cursed at on the boulevard. <laughs> but you can have a total stranger go into enemy <laughs> category, just like, just like that, right? And we're tempted, oh, we are tempted to respond in kind, right? Well, there are, but what... What have we done when we did whatever I just did? <laughs> what have we done when we think that way? We've put people 
in a category where we think we can treat them the way that they treat us. Right? We put them in a category where I don't have to love them. I don't have to be kind to them. That's what we do with enemies. Enemies are people that we act like enemies toward because they don't deserve it. But Jesus is teaching us a different way. He tells us to do good actions of love. To bless those who curse us. To give words of love and blessing. And then he says to pray for those who mistreat you. Now again, once we have somebody in the enemy category, they're not usually on our prayer lists, right? Our prayer lists are reserved for people that we love, people that we care about, people that we want to see succeed, people that we want to see do well. And Jesus says, that's the person who should be on your prayer list. Pray for those who mistreat you. You might think, yeah, I got some prayers for them. <laughs> All right. But pray for those who mistreat you. And as we seek to obey Jesus this way, I think we'll find our hearts changing. If you're praying for someone, praying for their good, praying for them to know God's love, praying for their joy, it's difficult to keep them in the enemy category, even if they keep acting like it. It's difficult to keep them in that category that we create, again, where it's like, they don't deserve anything from me anymore except my hatred. He says, do good, bless, pray. The kind of love that he's calling us to is a love in action, in word, and in heart. It also includes taking insults. Look at verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And then later on, he tells us to expect insults. We take Insults. We must be willing to be insulted, especially for Christ. That's the idea of being struck on the cheek. So where it says to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. It doesn't mean that if you're standing on a corner and someone randomly attacks you that you're like, you know, hey, you, you missed a side. Why don't you punch me one more time, Right? It it doesn't mean that. It's rather that we must be prepared to face insults and exclusion because we trust in Jesus. That's how it would have been used on that time. That that it would have been someone who maybe was part of the synagogue and part of the symbolic, you're out of here, is a slap in the face. We must be prepared to face insults and exclusion because we trust Jesus. In Jesus, and we'll look different from the world when we're not jumping up and down, insisting on our rights in that moment. We must be willing to be insulted. So, taking insults, but then positively giving sacrificially, though I guess it's not entirely positive, positive right? Because the last part of verse 29 from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now again, what what does this not mean? This does not mean that if someone breaks into your house that you must show them where the safe is, right? It's not like, oh, while you're here, the really valuable stuff is, right? It doesn't mean that you need to do that when someone breaks into your house. This especially has in view the person that you know, and particularly the person who is persecuting you or is against you because of your commitment to Christ. Who knows if they will be one through your act of love. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's shocking love, surprising forgiveness that makes people stop and think and consider and say, I've never seen anything like this before. It makes me think of Victor Hugo's super long novel, Les Mis, 
right? Jean Valjean, who's been, had a very difficult life, and he finally gets out of prison, but he still has to carry papers that say this is a prisoner, a former prisoner, and so he's not getting anything. A kind priest takes him in, and how does Jean Valjean repay that kindness? In the night, he steals the silver. And so I said, you know, it doesn't mean if someone breaks into your house that you show them where the safe is. But you might. That's essentially what the priest does. Right? Coming along saying, hey, yes. You know, he gets caught and people are saying, oh, you stole from this priest. And the priest says, no, 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 I, I gave it to him. And by the way, you missed the best stuff. And here it is. Jean Valjean, a man whose heart is a rock, is shaken to the core. Because he's never been treated like this before. We live in Northeast Philadelphia. I assure you, your neighbors, your coworkers, have never been treated like that priest treated Jean Valjean. Right? Have you experienced that just on your block? People are willing to give and give and give again. That's the idea of the last part of verse 29, from one who takes away your cloak. There'd be someone saying, here, give me that. They're like, okay, here's the rest of it. The expression, they'd give you the shirt off their back. Right? We would do that for our friends. But Jesus says, do that for your enemies. And then he broadens it in verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, what does this not mean? This doesn't mean that you have to give money to every person at every intersection on the boulevard on your commute home this week. Now, you can do that, and that's fine. But this is primarily about giving to people who can't give back to you. I know some of you, you'd go, well, the people on the boulevard, you know, you see them at the end of the day go and get in their nice car and drive off, and that's just the way they make money. And that's, some of them do that. It's for real. I've seen it too. But this is more about relationships, finding people who have needs and giving sacrificially, kind of rooted in last week's message, the first part of Jesus' sermon on the plain, that our values are different. So when we see someone in need, we're eager to meet it. We're eager to give. This is sacrificial giving, giving that costs us something. It's about giving to people who can't give back to you. It's about lending, Jesus says further down in verse 34, Expecting nothing in return. This is loving in situations where you have little to no hope of reciprocity. Bonus points to any of the kids who writes reciprocity in your notes as the word you didn't understand and spells it correctly without looking it up on anyone's phone. (laughs) All right. I was thinking of you, Amelia. And for anybody who doesn't know what reciprocity means, (laughs) it's loving without it being given back to you, right? He's saying even the world does that. The world knows how to give expecting something back. Like we're, we're friendly to people that we expect friendly responses from, right? It's easy to say hi to someone who's going to say hi back. But to the person that you think is just going to keep on going, it's a little bit harder, right? We tend to keep on going. And we don't bless them. We don't pray for them, we don't, go, we don't do good to them because they're stuck up. And in that moment, so are we. And maybe they're thinking the exact same thing about you. It's loving with little to no hope of receiving anything back. That's the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. 
We don't want to soften these commands by saying they're hard. But they are. And then in verse 31, we have what has become known as the golden rule. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We're supposed to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. Whether they treat us that way or not. That's kind of the point of the whole context. It's not just like, well, let's give this in nursery school and then everyone will be kind to each other now. Again, we we live where we live and we see how that plays out. It doesn't really happen. It doesn't mean that they'll do to us what we want to do to them, but it doesn't change Jesus' command to us to do to them what we would want from them. But this is hard, and we have a big problem, because we don't love our enemies. Right? We don't do this. We have not loved our enemies in action, word, and heart, taking insults and giving sacrificially. Come on, we don't even love our friends like that, let alone our enemies. Right? I mean, there are some people we just don't like them. Like, we'd like them better if they were better. You know, if we could expect them to like us. But again, Jesus says, even, even the world does that. There's no, no virtue there. There's no Christianity there. And even worse than just not living up to the standards, we know that not living up to the standards means that we make ourselves enemies, not just of one another, but enemies of God. We have disobeyed his law. We have disobeyed this law. This is hard. There's a reason it's called the hardest commandment. Because it's hard. It goes against everything that we are by nature. You might even hear and go, that sounds wrong. You're tracking with me then. To our nature, this sounds wrong. It's upside down. It's the opposite of what we would expect and what we would think we are supposed to do. Who can keep this law? None of us. Well, there's one who has. We have not loved God or or other people as we ought. We have loved ourselves. We have loved our comfort. We have looked out for our own interests. We love to be let off the hook but we want to nail the other person to the wall, right? When we do something wrong, I didn't really mean it. It wasn't a big deal. I'm so sorry. It should be over now. But when you do something, it's different. You need to pay. We want to be let off the hook and nail other people to the wall, but Jesus has done it for us. He was nailed to the cross, and we are let off the hook. We don't love our enemies, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loved his enemies. In all these descriptions, did you hear the echoes of what Jesus has done for us? God's love for us, we've been talking about it a lot today, and it's not generic. It's not a feeling. It's a love that does something, that did good to those who hated him, that blessed those who who cursed him, that prayed for those who mistreated him. Jesus is calling us to be like the Father, and he shows us what being like the Father looks like. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus gave his cheek to the one who would strike him. Jesus hung naked and alone. He gave way more than the shirt off his back. On the cross, so that we would be clothed with his righteousness and never have to be alone. Jesus prayed for the people who crucified him Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
He did this all as the suffering servant who would love God's people. Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 7 is in the middle of one of those servant songs in Isaiah. The servant is speaking. He says, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I'm determined to do what God has for me. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, Jesus was temporarily put to shame. He was put to shame. He was disgraced. He was despised. He was rejected for us. He gave his life for us and the Lord God helped him. Jesus is calling us to be like God, who he says near the end of this, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, his kindness could be as simple as God sends rain on the just and the unjust, but I think that it's more than that. Romans 5.10 says that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were enemies of God. God loved us while we were enemies through Christ. Just a few verses before that, Paul says that Christ died for the ungodly and that God showed his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Indeed, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's kind to us. And Jesus says to be merciful even as our Father is merciful. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is another call by the Apostle Paul to imitate God. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're called to love our enemies. We don't do that. We have not done that. But Jesus has loved his enemies. He's calling us to imitate our Father. He wants us to display his glory. This is why we can love our enemies. Because we know we are loved by God. So what does it mean to respond to Jesus? What does responding to Jesus look like here? Well, first, it looks like trusting Jesus, right? We think back, how, 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 how? Because the survivors of the Charleston shooting do that, right? How could they say the words of love and forgiveness that they said, even through their tears? They knew the love of God for them and that this life was not all. They knew the love of God for them And that this life is not all. And they were holding on to that truth. They were trusting Jesus for life, both now and forever. They know the love of Christ for them, and they were willing to have the love of Christ flow through them. We can only love like he loves when we know his great love for us. We can only be merciful like he is when we know his great mercy toward us. We can only give like he does when we know how much we have been given. Knowing God's love changes us. Do you know God's love for you? Are you trusting in the work of Jesus? 
for your right standing with God. See, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. We are naturally enemies of God. But God loved the world that was against him (laughs) so much that he sent his son, his unique son, his one and only son, to live among us, to live the perfect life that we were all supposed to live in heaven, to die on the cross in our place, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And then to rise on the third day from the dead, showing his power over sin and death and Satan forever. So that everyone who hopes in him, everyone who trusts in him and his work alone is changed from being called sinner to saint. From being God's enemy to being God's friend to being those who were hated and hating one another, to those who were God's dear children. This is amazing. If you don't yet know that love, you can know it today. You can trust him today. He is still holding out the offer of life through his death and resurrection to all who will heed his call even today. Responding to Jesus looks like trusting Jesus and it looks like following Jesus. Jesus is telling us to be like our father and he is the true son of the most high and we are called to follow in his steps. First Peter 2, this is how Peter talks about this concept. First Peter 2 verses 21 to 25, he says, for to this, for unjust suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued and trusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In verse 35 Jesus reiterates the command, says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus is the true Son of the Most High, and he calls us to follow him in acting like sons and daughters of the Most High. We really are, because we are in Christ. And he's telling us to act like our father. To bear the family resemblance. So it's not that we do all this in order to become children of God. He doesn't say you'll get to be children of God because you do that. He says you'll, you'll be sons of God. Who is he? He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The idea is that children have the family characteristics right you can tell it's like they walk the same they talk the same to a degree they look the same they're part of that family do we look like part of God's family do we look like part of Jesus family The good news of the gospel is he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his family. And he's calling us to act like it, to follow him. And how did he do it? Jesus did all this looking toward the promised reward. In the middle of verse 35, it says, Your reward will be great. This echoes what we saw last week. Jesus endured the cross because he looked 
to the reward. Hebrews 12, 2 teaches us that. He knew that victory, glory, and exaltation awaited him on the other side of the cross. And that is what is waiting on the other side for us too. That's why we can say, take it all. That's why we can be insulted. That's why we can give up glory or prestige or position or any of those things in this life. Because this life is so short. And eternity is so long. And Paul tells us that the sufferings of this life are not even worth being compared with the glory that will be revealed. That is in no way to minimize the suffering that we face. It doesn't make the suffering smaller. It makes our view of the glory that's coming get a little bit closer to what it will really be. How great and how wonderful it will be with God and all his people forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Your reward will be great. Not here, not now, but there. In that eternal day. As followers of Jesus, we must, we must, we must love our enemies. Do you know God's love, God's mercy, God's grace in such a way that it flows through you to others, even toward your enemies, in action, in word, and in heart, so that you're willing to take insults, willing to give sacrificially? We need to know God's love for us, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to know God's love for us, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit. When you are ready this afternoon to put someone in the enemy category again. Cast yourself on the Lord. Trust in him. Ask for his help. He would love to answer a prayer like that. He would love to answer a prayer like that. We need to know God's love for us. We need the help of the Spirit, and we too look to the reward. There's an American runner who became, after being an Olympian in the 1936 Olympics, he was really going to hit his prime for the 40 Olympics that never happened because of the onset of World War II. His name is Louis Zamperini. You may be familiar now with his story. It's been popularized um, through a couple movies in the last few years. Louis Zamperini is one who, was, who became a prisoner of war, in Japan. He was in a couple different prison camps there. And he was horribly mistreated. He was abused. Day by day. Hour by hour. Um, He was picked out as a special one to get extra abuse because they wanted to use him because he was kind of a household name having been an Olympian. And so he was singled out when he refused to cooperate and talk about how well everyone was being treated and that the U.S. should stop fighting against Japan. He refused to do that, and he spent about three awful, awful years waiting for the Allies to win the war. Many times he thought he was going to die. Every day he hated his captors. He hated one man in particular, who's known as the bird. Eventually, the Allies did win the war. He comes home. He shows serious effects of what we would now know as PTSD. That wasn't a thing yet then. He had gotten married. He was drinking heavily. He was angry. He would dream about killing the bird and wake up choking his wife. Finally, she was like, I I just cannot do this anymore. And when she was at that point, a friend invited her to a Billy Graham crusade back when that was actually the crusade that kind of made Billy Graham Billy Graham, where he went from being kind of a regional known evangelist to being an evangelist known all over the world with the in Los Angeles. 
She went, heard the gospel, believed. She begged Louis to come. He's like, no, no, no. And then one of the nights as the rally was extended, as the meetings were extended, he came and sat in the back. He's like, I'm not going to listen to this. Who's this young guy up there? He doesn't know anything. And he heard the gospel. And God opened his heart to believe. And he began to know God's love in ways that still do not make sense to us. And just a couple years later, he was back in Japan meeting with many of his captors who now were themselves prisoners doing time for the war crimes that they had committed. And he's there one by one finding them, embracing them, saying, I love you, I forgive you, let me tell you of the love of my Savior. Do we know God's love like that? God's love changes us, right? That's no natural thing. None of us have experienced what Louis Zamperini experienced. None of us have experienced what those at the church in Charleston experienced. But we have all been loved like Jean Valjean was loved by the priest. Maybe not by our neighbors, maybe not by our family, but by our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life for us to make enemies friends. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you have made us yours by your grace. We do not deserve to even be allowed to live. And yet we get so much more than that every day, both now and forever. Would you teach us of your love for us. And would you help us to turn to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our enemies, and show Christ's love by the power of the Holy Spirit as we look to the reward that is coming. Would you do this deep work in us? Would you stop us in our tracks sometime this week when we're ready to place somebody in the enemy box? And would you teach us to love instead, to do good, to bless, and to pray? Oh, would you do this? We need your help. Would you help us? And would you change us? And would you change our neighborhood for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.